Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Haas Talks Foss. I'm the Haas, head of open source strategy here at Percona, Matt Yankovic. And today I am joined by Yuri, the CEO of EdgeDB. Yuri, how are you doing today? Good, good. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Now, now, Yuri, um, you know, I wanted to chat with you because, you know, EdgeDB has uh, recently come onto the scene. I think it was a couple weeks or a couple months ago where you reached a version one. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was long under development for several years. Uh, we finally launched it, came out of this this weird stealth mode that we've been in for uh, for what felt like decades, but it was actually a couple of years. And uh, yeah, finally we released 1.0. Uh, it hit Hacker News, uh, was number one there for 14 hours, maybe 15. Uh, amassed almost 1,000 uploads. Uh, the reception was very positive and warm, unusually, I would say, for a chan. So uh, yeah, it was a great launch. Awesome, awesome to hear. Well, I wanted to start maybe with a little bit about the background here. I know that you have been a longtime contributor to the Python community. And so you started your work uh, really early on developing a lot of the core features and modules that went into Python. And at some point during that journey, Something must have happened to make you interested in redesigning a database and and kind of like rethinking the the approach. What maybe walk us through, you know, yeah. maybe those early days and what what gave you this inspiration? Like like how did it hit? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the answer is luck. <laughs> luck. Okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, almost, almost luck. I, th I think we're sort of lucky to stumble upon this idea and uh, how we actually execute it. But the story is actually uh, quite a bit longer than just luck. So uh, my co-founder and I uh, started a software development consultancy in Toronto uh, in 2008. And we worked with a bunch of different companies. Uh, we helped small companies to build software, big companies to build software. We ended up helping uh, General Electric, Cisco, ABB, Microsoft, Pinterest, uh, multiple different companies. And um, uh, we were using our own stack. Uh, most of those products that we built were using our own stack uh, uh, written in Python programming language. And uh, one of the most notable things of that, of that stack was the data layer and lots and lots of ideas that we kind of battle tested uh, while developing all this software uh, uh, are now in HDB. This was the foundation for HDB. Um, and yeah, because it was, was all in Python, it was a pretty advanced framework and the foundation, we really tried to push uh, the limits of Python programming language. Almost inevitably, I guess, I became a Python core developer uh, around 2013. It actually, it actually all started with uh, scratching my own little itch. So uh, back then, when we actually started Magic Stack, that was the name of our Canadian company, consulting company, still exists, by the way. Uh, we decided to use Python uh, as a language of choice. Mm -hmm. And back then, Python has just started the transition, the, the famous transition from two to three that took a decade uh, for Python to actually clear. And uh, when we started, I think Python 3.0 uh, was released and it was an alpha version of it, alpha six or alpha seven. <clears throat> so we started to use Python, Python 3 super early. Basically nobody uh, else was uh, using it at all. 
And uh, at some point of time, uh, because again, this is a uh, new major release of Python language with uh, this intent, let's fix bugs, let's fix annoyances of the uh, version two, even if it's slightly backwards incompatible. Like if you if you see a thing that has to be fixed, let's fix it. But I noticed this weird behavior that like when you're checking if an attribute is present on an object or not, it just consumed all errors. Uh, doesn't actually matter what kind of errors, just silence them all. And that was oh. super hard to debug in our data layer because our data layer kind of overloaded like all those attribute checks and it would just magically like check if something is present there, make a request to the database. It was like super early iteration of the data layer. We don't do this anymore in HDB. It's a bad idea, but uh, okay. back then we did. <laughs> back then we did, and I just proposed, "Hey, let's let's fix it." And uh, that was my first contribution to the Python programming language. The actual patch was like two lines long, uh, but still, uh, I think it counts. Uh, and later on, I was just uh, uh, I just continued to read the mailing list. I proposed uh, more and more features. At some point of time, I became a Python core developer, and uh, yeah. Uh, it just kind of uh, it was an interesting relationship, basically, because we were evolving our code base and whatever stuff uh, was kind of missing for us in Python. Uh, we were trying to push it in Python, and this is how we ended up adding async await to Python programming language. This is how I ended up helping with maintaining the asynchronous I/O layer in Python, and uh, many many other uh, things we did. Um, and that's a very yeah. classic start to the open source space. I think a lot of people get afraid of open source and to start contributing, but they don't realize that many people who end up becoming very influential or core developers start with a two-line patch. They start with the things that are impacting their own yeah. you know, usage of the software. Exactly. And, and it's, it's a very easy transition if you're willing to, you know, start to look and start to learn and start to contribute back. I think that's one of the, the awesome things about the open source space is it's one of the few places where you can go and you see something that just doesn't quite work right or it doesn't quite seem right. And you have the ability to change it and to help influence that community. Yeah. So that's why I've always been a huge fan of the open source space and been in it for all these years. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, and it's, people it's, actually... Yeah, and people actually approach me all the time and asking these questions like, how do I become a Python core developer? And I'm always answering, hey, just start contributing. It's super easy. We now have GitHub. It's not like uh, the contribution process is obscure or anything. If you, if you see some typo in the documentation or some improvement, just contribute, just start. And then after making 20, 30 contributions, people will know you. And this is how you will become a Python core developer. You don't have to be a genius to become one. You don't have to know C, C++, or assembly. You don't need all that. All you need is basically just enthusiasm. That's it. Um, so yeah, I really encourage all people to not just contribute to Python, but really to do anything. There are so many open uh, to contributions, open source products, uh, projects. Uh, it's a great thing. Oh yeah, definitely. And and so during this time, you you've you've just kind of achieved your core developer status. You've you've been working with, you know, some some of these new modules like async IO and you know some of these contributions. So and you've had your own data layer. So how did that transition to EdgeDB? So so how did that, you know, how did you go from I'm contributing core Python to no. new database or you know the, the EdgeDB? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, well, uh, I guess Elvis, my co-founder, and I were a little bit tired of running this consultancy agency. It's uh, it's not an easy business, actually. Uh, sometimes you make something great and it goes nowhere. Sometimes you make something great and it actually flies. You never know. It's always a roller coaster. You have to uh, uh, you have to basically sometimes survive from check to check. Uh, and we decided, hey, we, we, we should actually become a product company. It would be so much more interesting and engaging for us and open way more possibilities. And we looked critically at what we had. And uh, I mean, we are developers, both of us, uh, software engineers. So this is what we do best. Uh, so we looked at our infrastructure and, hey, this data layer looks actually super promising. Uh, what if we actually make it a database? Like it doesn't have to be a library. Uh, it would be way more powerful if we just took all the good ideas mix uh, uh, that already work, mix in some, some other good ideas that we know will work and just uh, make it a proper database, make it language agnostic so that it wouldn't matter if you are coding in C or Ruby or JavaScript or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, just use this high-level data store. This is how GDB kind of was envisioned. Uh, I think around 2016, maybe 2015, but we haven't actually started working on HDB per se uh, at that time. We were thinking that, yeah, this must happen, this will happen, but we have to prepare for it because the vast majority of code was written in Python and we knew that the Python isn't just gonna cut it in, in its current state back then. This is how I got involved with uh, asynchronous I/O because we needed concurrency, we needed uh, mm -hmm. high throughput. Uh, this is how uh, we uh, and why we actually worked on adding async await to Python because we knew that HDB is going to have this asynchronous core. This is how we discovered Cython, which is this uh, dialect of Python that compiles to C. How we created UV loop, which is like this uh, I/O acceleration library that is now, I think, almost a de facto standard in the Python asynchronous world. So yeah, we, we kind of gradually evolved our code base and ourselves to this idea that HDB will happen. And around 2018, we slowly started working on it. I, I would say that we started to spend about roughly like 50% of our time just making sure that the uh, lights are up and business is running and 50% uh, of our time uh, working on HDB. Okay. and so. The data access layer that you built EdgeDB on, is it really designed more for an interface or an, an, an experience that developers uh, are more used to than a classic SQL interface or the standard kind of APIs that are in relational databases nowadays? Uh, well, nowadays, EdgeDB is basically a relational database. It, it runs on top of Postgres, but this is an implementation detail. But everything else is kind of different with HDB. So first of all, we are saying that relational model is great uh, and relational databases are just ridiculously good, uh, especially Postgres. It's absolutely an incredible database. And, um, and essentially, it's a platform that you can build foundation. There are multiple companies that, that do this, by the way. Mm -hmm. For example, Yugabyte and uh, Timescale, they all kind of take Postgres and build either on the side or underneath it. This is a common pattern. So with HDB, we're just replacing the entire front end. We replace how the schema is defined. We replace how we replace the query language. We define um, uh, how you do migrations and multiple other things, including the binary protocol, the client API. So basically the entire front end 
of the database uh, uh, is changed with HTTP. And um, to actually be somewhat successful at this change and to actually make it possible to actually compete with traditional relational databases in the SQL, it had to have a proper foundation. Uh, and um, I think we have it now. We call it graph relational. Essentially, it's an extension relational model. And we use this foundation to define everything, our data model, to define our query language. So to answer your question, uh, basically, HDB is a new database that wants to be a complete replacement for traditional relational databases. Uh, it's built on Postgres. It's, fun it's fundamentally relational. It's uh, best for the same use cases that Postgres is best at. It just has far greater DX. Uh, it will make you way more um, uh, productive. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting approach. And this is what really piqued my interest around Edge. So you mentioned Postgres is the, the platform. And I have seen a lot of companies use Postgres at its core. Um, but it's interesting because there's two different types of problems that people are trying to solve. So you look at like a Yugabyte or a CockroachDB, for instance, um, and, and they, they, they are trying to leave the client interface and the APIs there so you can use what is already built for Postgres and then they replace the back end to make it cloud native or whatever. Yeah. So they have replaced the back end, which is, which is cool. Um, but what I hear from developers is they want a faster, easier experience. They're, 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 they're pushed to move faster. So a lot of them don't like SQL. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a database guy, so I've grown up in the database space forever. So, but I, I always say this at conferences that I go to, it's like, people think databases are uncool when you talk to developers. They're like, ah, yeah. yeah, we need a database, but you know, we don't like writing SQL. Yeah, we hate defining this and that, and it's just not natural to us. It doesn't yeah. follow the flow. And you yeah. see that certain databases like uh, MongoDB become popular because it bucked the trend of a lot of the relational client libraries, which is interesting because EdgeDB's approach is opposed to taking a client library and building the backend. You've taken the backend and said, you know, the backend is pretty, pretty darn good, but you know what really could be better and could reach more developers? It's the, the 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 front end. It's the interaction. It's how how developers think about code. It's how developers think about the data that that's in their applications. And that's a very different approach. But I think it has a lot of potential just because of where developers are nowadays and and how they're evolving and the pressures that are being put on them. They they want to think about data like they think about code. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is a vast topic and I will share a couple of thoughts. I might end up walking walk, walk in circles if I do, just interrupt me. Uh, before I start though, yes, we are based on Postgres and yes, we are building on top of Postgres. Uh, traditionally, companies usually build on a site like Timescale or uh, mm -hmm. kind of change the uh, some of the uh, base layers, let's say, like uh, IO layer, for example. And we are doing a different job right now. But nothing actually precludes us from tinkering with Postgres at a deeper level, potentially into the future. We as a company has, have a very ambitious goal, essentially. It's basically to redefine relational databases. If we just wanted to write everything from scratch, let's say, just not use Postgres, just write our own storage engine, 
that would be possible. It would just take us two more decades to do that. Uh, it's 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 excruciatingly painful to create a proper, working, solid, robust database engine. So we chose Postgres. We could uh, focus our efforts on uh, a new front end and on better scalability. For example, we could uh, try to do something similar to what AWS is doing with Aurora, or we could do something similar to Yugabyte or PlanetScale. But then our focus would be just kind of diluted. We would not be working on front-end as much, and we would probably not be able to work on the back-end as much. So instead, we decided that, hey, using Postgres is ultimately an implementation detail. It's a great one. We should focus on one thing, do it right. And when it's time for us uh, and when uh, our future customers grow to some uh, certain scale, when they would need um, uh, a better engine, basically, like a better internal engine than, than just vanilla Postgres, basically, then we'll take a look at what we should do. And by the way, Postgres is not also standing still. It, uh, it, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It evolves it's rapidly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's evolving rapidly. Uh, they are adding hooks and uh, things, and now there are new database companies that try to use that functionality to uh, uh, change uh, table engines, uh, to change how the data is stored. And uh, multiple different advancements are happening. So basically, uh, with HDB, we're going to continue focusing on DX and uh, uh, implementing some of the currently missing pieces of, uh, of the puzzle. Uh, and then when it's time, uh, uh, sometime into the future, we'll start working on the uh, backend infrastructure and uh, try to address the scalability issue. But ultimately, the vision of HDB, uh, and I'm glad that you actually talked a little bit about SQL and the developers uh, don't quite like it. Uh, that's actually true. Developers hate databases, and I think this, um, you, you said it right, I think uh, it's the reason why MongoDB became so popular, because uh, suddenly it was like a breath of uh, fresh air. Uh, we don't need migrations. This is like the most painful thing about relational databases. We don't need SQL, just use simple APIs. And a lot of developers uh, decided, yeah, let's let's try it. Then years later, they discovered maybe that's not the best approach. And now we see this renaissance of uh, relational databases. If you open Hacker News or Reddit, you will see that like almost every day somebody is blogging about Postgres and uh, how, how cool it is. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, databases, relational databases are still pretty much where they were in 2010 and where they were in 2000s and 90s and 80s. SQL is still SQL, tables are still tables. And uh, without actually addressing some of the some of these fundamentals, I don't think that it's possible to meaningfully improve the DX of a relational database. So we have to actually uh, start digging deep. Uh, there are multiple different uh, companies that uh, create ORMs or create some middleware or create, uh, I don't know, UIs uh, for the database, but they all kind of try to just solve one piece of this uh, big puzzle. And with HDB, we are trying to do something way more ambitious, which is basically, hey, how would a relational database look if it was designed today? Today, when we, not in the 70s, when we had mainframes and uh, when the software architecture was it's not even correct to say vastly different. It was just alien to what we have now. Uh, and what would it look like? What would we do differently? And uh, HDB is an answer uh, to that. And if you want, I can go into the detail, like what exactly uh, have we changed? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you're you're dead on. I think, you know, SQL's evolution, it 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 is 
slow right now, and it has been for the last 20 years. Um, it's stable. That's great. And there are people who have those skill sets, but uh, the current generation of developers are thinking and uh, moving differently. And they have so many different options that they are exploring and starting to invest in. Um, I think that it only makes sense that databases eventually have to catch up. And, you know, there, there are, like you said, ORMs out there. There are different techniques and things that people use to try and mask this. But part of the challenge with those are is they are outside of the database itself, right? And so exactly. they're, they're, they're bolt-ons. And, yep. you know, problem with the ORMs is ORM interprets what you want and tries to interpret what the database wants. And the likelihood of getting that 100% right all the time is pretty low. And it, and it generally has scalability issues, other things, because it's not designed to necessarily work uh, 100% the same way. And I think that, that really limits it. Don't even uh, let me get started on ORMs. So, <laughs> hey, hey, I used to do a lot of database, you know, consulting, right? So that was, my, was my my yeah, thing. Yeah, so I I know yeah. the pain. Yeah, you know? it was it was almost a revelation. Like when we were preparing for uh, the launch of 1.0, we had this uh, live launch event on uh, on YouTube, and we wanted to make it uh, interesting. So we had like almost a mini conference. By the way, it's uh, it's it's all on YouTube. Uh, anyone who is listening now and curious about this, you guys can uh, search on YouTube and you will find it. Uh, just type HTTP. Um, anyways, I mean, I, uh, Elvis and I, my co-founder and I had a conversation uh, a few days before the event and uh, we were just talking about ORMs and uh, so-called object relational impedance mismatch, which is actually the root cause of ORMs. It's basically that tables are not how programming languages represent data necessarily and how developers work with it. Uh, and we just said this out loud that, hey, object, uh, object relational impedance mismatch sounds like, I don't know, string theory or some, some deep physical property of this universe, but it's not. <laughs> it's very far from it. It's a self-inflicted pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only reason why we have it is because our uh, relational data model is slightly different from uh, from our programming languages. And because of this deep incompatibility, we, we, we struggle. And this incompatibility actually manifests itself in the design of SQL as a programming language, which is query language, which is actually great. And it's a shame that uh, it's a little bit more complicated uh, than it should be. And so people don't actually use its full potential. Uh, and yeah, basically, this is the root of the problem, but it's important to realize that this problem is self-made and uh, that with the choice of right data model inside the database, you just don't need this. You don't need this extra layer of abstraction. You just can talk the database native tongue without, uh, without the need of this uh, weird, awkward, slow translator. And I think it's, it's weird. Orms have been with us for decades. And they shape the perception of uh, of how you should work with the database. Basically, there are like two camps now. I, I use pure SQL or I try to use ORMs. And when you use ORMs, you also have to use SQL. Unfortunately, that's inevitable. Uh, but it's been so uh, entrenched in our minds that Sometimes it's hard for me to pitch uh, HDB to people. Like I'm, I'm saying that, hey, we, we, we defined the data 
layer, so that uh, the data, data model, so that's compatible, it's high level, it has object types, and they basically say, hey, so it's basically an ORM in a database. Well, sure, I'm not going to fight your opinion. Yeah, you can you can say that, but somehow it's incredibly hard for people to just even wrap around uh, their heads around this concept that hey, database can just natively have a higher level data structure within it, and you don't have to call it a norm because yeah. norm is something else. Yeah, well, I mean, I think ORMs themselves, when you add the S, it is a four-letter word, um, and I think that's that's it's negative because it is that translation layer, but I think that what you're doing is something that many other databases have done and, or tried to do, which is create a new way to access natively, which is more of an API-driven approach. And that's a little different, right? And so you see people's approach to this, you know, MySQL, for instance, they have, uh, you know, their X protocol, which, you know, gives you an API that you can access. And you can now access JSON through most relational databases, but you still are bound by a lot of the SQL issues and shenanigans. And I know that as, you know, you get more um, divergent code bases and more, more options in terms of databases, even the SQL standards start to slip a little between the databases, so they don't always work. And so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity out there. And you know, you know, you, you mentioned you know, like you know, your graph relational, you know, uh, uh, focus. Now I'm I'm curious when you know when I hear graph, and this is a, a specific question. Yeah. There there are two different things. There's graph databases. And then there's GraphQL, which is more of the API for databases. Yes. Where, which one are you talking about specifically? But you know, uh, I'm curious. Uh, none of those. <laughs> none of those. Okay, there you go. Yeah. See? Yeah. Um, yeah. So to explain, is, explain it. Yeah. Yeah. There is there is a story here. Uh, basically, the edge word in EdgeDB, uh, it doesn't mean edge computing uh, necessarily yet. Uh, what it what it what it meant when we coined the name uh, was just an edge in the graph. But we are not a graph database. So when we are talking about graph, we are talking about the graph of your relations within your relational schema. Uh, we uh, think of graphs when we work with objects in uh, in JavaScript. Basically, yes, like uh, I don't know, you have object A and object B. Uh, you don't necessarily have to use any uh, graph data structure or anything. Just having two objects in memory linking each other, well, conceptually, it's a graph. So uh, this is uh, this is uh, the, the the why uh, we call it graph relational because it's uh, an extension to relational model that basically uh, uh, slightly elevates uh, uh, elevates it to a more high-level model. And, but I, I think it's time for me to decipher what graph relational means, uh, what, what this extension to relational model is, uh, because it's actually very simple. So uh, it actually consists of just a few minor adjustments of, uh, of the classical relational uh, model. So adjustment number one, Every piece of data must have an ID, globally unique, data-independent ID. Because in classical relational database, you can have a table without any ID whatsoever, or you can uh, combine a couple of columns and say, this is my ID, or you can just uh, have an auto-increment integer, and uh, that would be your ID, uh, or no ID at all. Uh, in HDB, uh, every object type or table um, uh, has a required property called ID, which is UUID. Second extension is that we are introducing concept of links. 
So essentially, we say that uh, a piece of data can explicitly link other pieces of data. So essentially, you don't need to have uh, uh, joins. Uh, you don't need to have foreign keys. There's slightly more higher level abstraction of a link. You, you, you can also call it reference if you want. Just replaces this need. So now your one one type can directly reference the other type. And the third extension, which is a little bit more uh, kind of esoteric, it's that we treat everything as a set. So our query language HQL is a set-based uh, query language, and uh, our data is stored in sets. And links can be single or they can be multiple. If it's a multiple link, it refers to a set of objects. And uh, this actually, like, you don't think about this this much when you write HQL or when you work with uh, with uh, the database, but it manifests itself itself uh, in pretty interesting ways. For example, there is no concept of null in HQL in our query language, and null is is a painful thing in SQL. Mm. It can do so many interesting things to you. Like, uh, for example, it can collapse your data and just nullify it all, and then you have an empty report, or you would be missing. Uh, uh, a column in your report it would be null from time to time. Uh, maybe uh, I don't know. Uh, you uh, calculated the um, mean value uh, in your report, and suddenly you had one line in your report when you just had one value. I think Postgres will happily return you null in this case. So it's it's really uh, it's really a weird thing because in SQL it can mean an error, an absence of data, multiple different things. In HQL we don't have this all. If there is an error, you have an exception. It's better to crash a query than give you incorrect results. Uh, and if you have missing data, it's an empty set. And the entire language is uh, carefully um, engineered, architected, and balanced around uh, this notion. So almost like there are no surprises, basically. Anyways, this is the entire graph relational thing. It's, it's the kind of the mathematical foundation of HDB. And, um, uh, just by looking at it, you can imagine and uh, basically did use what HDB is doing. You yeah, can yeah. think of HDB as basically, I don't know, LLVM. It's like an optimizing compiler. We compile high-level data schema to low-level table layout. If you actually look under the hood, you just connect to the underlying Postgres instance that we manage, you will see a fairly normal uh, uh, table layout. Pretty classical one, like no, 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 surprise, no surprises there. We don't do anything uh, crazy there. We just map our high-level data model to low-level table structure. We compile our query language, HQL, to SQL. Uh, we do some interesting tricks, and we uh, use some uh, interesting and unique traits of uh, uh, SQL implementation in Postgres, specifically. But ultimately, it's SQL. Uh, you, can, you can read it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a basically a compiler for high-level thing to low-level thing. And it all builds on that. This is kind of the kernel, uh, the kernel of HDB, uh, the graph relational model, and this idea that we can compile high-level things to low-level things, and uh, this way we can unlock more power. Yeah, it's, it's and it's almost... not new. It's not new in our industry, right? No, no people yeah, yeah. write uh, bytecode by hand. <laughs> you use compilers for this. Yeah, so right. Why, why would you be writing SQL by hand? This is my yeah. It's it's, a, it's almost like a, a babblefish, right? I mean, uh, I, yeah. I, I'm hesitant to use that because that was coined by AWS. Or it's a trend. It, it's 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 the thing that's going to speak developer speak and turn it into something that you know a, a, a hardcore database nerd would understand and and do it for you in an efficient way. 
Yeah, but sometimes it's not even possible for a hardcore database nerd to do what we do uh, because there is a limit uh, to uh, uh, <laughs> there is an obvious time limit how that database oh, of course. Uh, how much yeah, yeah. time the database nerd can spend writing just one query. I can give you an example. So. Uh, when we try to explain HQL, um, I think actually GraphQL helped us a lot because GraphQL showed people that, hey, uh, uh, expressing uh, this uh, idea that you can just fetch a hierarchy of objects in one query and getting this data easily is awesome. Mm -hmm. And this is it, this made is it, 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 it much easier for us to basically pitch HQL. So this problem, hey, give me a list of users, and for every user, give me a list of his friends. And for every friend, give me their email and, uh, I don't know, first name and address. It sounds like an easy thing. And it is an easy thing conceptually. But actually implementing it in SQL is surprisingly hard. Yeah. And actually implementing it in ORM is surprisingly hard. In SQL, you can actually do some tricks, especially, I mean, if you use Postgres uh, and uh, you use things like ArrayHug. Uh, but it's going to be somewhat painful for you to, to compose this query. If you rely on, on ORM, your ORM can actually make thousands of queries for this simple thing. You might never know what it's actually doing, but it might be doing some horrible things uh, under this. For this simple conceptual task that every developer has to, one way or another, deal with nowadays. And this is why developers hate databases, by the way, because even simple things like this that sound conceptually easy, are hard to do. So with, H, uh, with HDB and HQL, it's, uh, this query is trivial. It's like HQL 101. You will be able to write this query like literally one minute after being introduced to HQL. It's, it's, it's a trivial thing. It will be compiled to a SQL query, one SQL query, which will be executed atomically. It will be executed very fast in Postgres because Postgres Query Planner is crazy good. And uh, yeah, uh, but the SQL query that you would get for fetching a hierarchy of, let's say, three levels deep, it will look complicated. It would look something like you wouldn't want to write by hand. And this is the whole point. It's literally five lines of HQL that would be compiled to, I don't know, 30 lines of SQL that is not so obvious, yet super fast to execute, like two milliseconds to execute for Postgres. And boom, you have it. Uh, so yeah, uh, this is where you, you, have, you start to, to kind of see this leverage that this mm -hmm. idea, this uh, uh, idea kind of manifests itself as a very powerful idea that you can do so much more if you add this, uh, if you add this kind of step of compiling high-level things to low-level things within the database, not outside of it. Okay. So because Postgres is the back end, can EdgeDB sit on top of other implementations of Postgres or is it uh, only what you download directly from EdgeDB. Like, so for instance, if you're running on AWS and you want to run AWS's RDS Postgres, can you put EdgeDB on top of it? Yeah, we support it right now. Uh, cool. We we used to have um, an extension to Postgres, which would prevent you from deploying to AWS. We used to actually patch Postgres, but some of those patches were upstreamed. We contributed them back to the community. Uh, so basically now HDB runs on vanilla Postgres. You don't need to have every, uh, anything uh, special in it at all. We have guides on how you would deploy HDB to DigitalOcean or AWS or uh, Google Cloud or Azure. It's, it's honestly up to you. We have a Docker container that, uh, that can deploy along an existing Postgres or just ship it with a Postgres inside. Entirely up to you. But the future of HDB is going to be slightly different. 
we don't actually want people to deploy to AWS this much because it's painful. I mean, there are mm. some people who will always want it and uh, we're not going to make their life harder uh, if they want to do it. But the majority of people just struggle because there's so much th there, there are so much things that you have to configure properly. Uh, how you configure your, I don't know, TLS certificates, uh, how you map one port to another, how you configure HDB to actually see that Postgres, how do you do backups? Like all of this is quite complicated. So the dream that we have uh, at HDB is to basically just uh, automate this all, give you a nice HDB uh, cloud option where okay. it would literally take you just one command or one button click to just get your uh, database running in production. And we are incredibly close to it. We're going to launch uh, the first technical preview of our cloud in just uh, about a month. Uh, okay. For and four is to that, six weeks. Is, is that um, cloud then using, like, you can deploy in AWS, Google, DigitalOcean, and you get to choose kind of the base cloud platform, and then yeah. you manage everything out? Okay, cool. At the very, at the very first, yeah, at the very first, it's going to be just AWS. Uh, at least during this technical demo period. Yeah. But, I mean, the, but the goal, but the goal is, uh, yeah, multi-cloud. You will just choose the region. You will uh, choose the cloud provider, and we will just run the database for you and automate absolutely everything. Okay. It, it's, yeah. One of the big things, and this is something that I've seen as a trend in the database space. Um, and I was actually talking about this uh, uh, at the Postgres Silicon Valley conference a couple weeks ago. Was the developer side of Postgres you know, it's the demands there are increasing and this is going to really drive a lot of Postgres innovation over the next 20 years or 10 years or five years or next year. Um, you know, all of, all of those being inclusive. And I think that one of the interesting things is cloud providers and cloud instances typically are designed to solve the operational issues, but they leave all of the development foo, the, 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 the work between, uh, building an application, designing it, making sure that, you know, the schema is okay and everything to you. And it sounds like Edge kind of fits that gap uh, where, you know, you you provide some of those tools to make more efficient decisions from a database perspective, uh, a, better, a, a bit better design, enforce some of those rules uh, that you should have in the first place to ensure your data consistency and scalability, as well as provide those operational things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the whole point again at uh, kind of reinventing the entire front end of the database because we're just we're not just reinvented the the data model, let's say, or designed our own query language. It goes deeper. So mm -hmm. at HDB, for example, schema migrations that's the first class feature of the database. The database know database is actually the best place where the migrations should happen, and uh, the database knows how to do them correctly, perfectly. It knows what migrations are potentially dangerous or not. It makes sense to do them in the database. It's uh, it's still an open question for me why uh, I think HDB is the first database that uh, relational database that just has this first class notion of uh, schema. First of all, uh, a schema that is editable and that is kind of viewable by you and uh, that is controllable by the database and tracked by the database and the first class uh, migrations workflow so you don't have to use a norm or anything else but then again it goes deeper than this because we also implement our own binary protocol and we also implement our client apis and uh, i'll just give you an example with client apis so uh, why why do we actually want to implement our client apis well because uh we are i think entering different age now it's a serverless age it's a distributed age 
uh, when uh, when you run multiple, uh, when you can run multiple different database nodes and potentially multiple different regions. Some of them can be redundant. Some of them can be can be writable. Uh, things can happen, like network partition errors can happen. And uh, database client APIs, all of them, are just not there. Let's say uh, a network partition error happens. Well, your application will display 500 there. And guarding against that, it's just a way, like you will have to just copy paste a lot of boilerplate code to just uh, handle the specific case. Or let's say you want to intelligently route uh, your read-only queries to read-only replicas. There is no infrastructure for this whatsoever. It has to be hard-coded. So at HDB, at HDB, we actually know absolutely everything about every query. We know if it's read-only or not. We know if it touches any volatile functions or not. Uh, we know absolutely everything about everything. And uh, that allows us to uh, make some decisions. For example, our client libraries will soon be able to route queries automatically, read-only queries to read-only mm. replicas. Our client libraries right now uh, can, uh, can repeat the query if it's safe to repeat, if a network error happens. Like if it's uh, a read-only query and a connection was just like the socket disconnected, the I.O., no I.O., we know that, hey, I can actually reconnect and transparently repeat this query and get the data because it's safe, because this data is read-only. Whereas if I, was, if I was mutating something and the network error happened, I have no idea maybe that, that, that query actually committed. So now I can show you 500 error. Uh, but most of the time, uh, we, we, we read data, right? So uh, by just automating this tiny aspect of your client API, hey, can you just survive network errors? We're already uh, improving quality of service. Uh, and uh, or let's say you, you, you start the transaction and then you get a serialization error. This is going to be more and more a uh, common theme. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, most, most libraries just give up. Hey, you have transaction serialization error. But the whole point of this error is so that you can just go and retry this transaction. So in our APIs, you don't have to do anything special. We will just retry it for you automatically. We basically engineer the APIs to, 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 uh, to, uh, to just be capable of that. Some of our APIs look slightly weird for in Python, for example, because in, in Python, there, there is no concept of uh, multi-line lambda function or closure. So uh, in Python API, you will basically say for tx in uh, con.tx uh, with tx. So you kind of do like these two blocks. But that allows us to repeat this transaction if it fails. So a lot of thought went into designing those client libraries to make sure that all the best practices are incorporated in them so that developers don't have to think about them at all. And this kind of attention to detail, I think, makes HDB a unique company right now because so many companies try to figure out deployment and scalability and global availability those are all good companies and this is a big problem but ultimately i i, I, I kind of I, I i feel great about it i think the humanity is safe uh, we, we, we have already plenty of options for globally available databases but the uh, this api the ui the dx part of of of, of what it means to interface with a relational database it's still missing is still neglected, and a lot of the pain that should be that should be solved by the database entirely is basically continues to rest on developers' shoulders. And what do they do? They either just don't like it and suffer through, or they just don't care and they ignore those problems. Or maybe they are not even aware of them because you don't have network partition errors on your laptop when you are developing applications. You will have them in production for sure, 
you might not even know that you have them. So yeah, this is what makes HDB uh, quite unique. Okay. Well, Yuri, I like to end these discussions with some rapid fire questions. Sure. These are random questions that have nothing to do with technology in some cases. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's just kind of a mix. So I, I, I like to do this. I started this uh, recently and it's worked out pretty well just to get to know uh, the person who we're talking to a little bit more uh, and, and, and get people interested when they, they meet you to maybe say, hey, that's pretty cool. Should, so, be, should be fun. And, should uh, be if fun. If anything goes wrong, we'll, we'll edit it out for sure. Uh, no, no, it'll go into the bloopers. <laughs> oh my uh, God. So, <laughs> yeah. right, so, so Yuri, so let's say we meet up at a conference and someone wants to you know buy you a drink and talk to you about EdgeDB. What is your drink of choice? What would they buy you? Could be coffee, could it, be drink, it, it, could be soda. It depends. At a, a conferences, I usually go for beer. Uh, okay. Uh, but maybe if I'm about to pitch HDB, I would uh, choose a glass of red wine. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Contessure of wine or a beer yeah. if it's just hanging out. All right. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, what uh, is the last book you read? Uh, it was Andy Weir uh, uh, novel. Um, What's what was the name? Uh, it was about this. Uh, well, I, I cannot actually retell the story, I guess, without spoiling it too much. <laughs> but basically, this okay. The, the first chapter started that the sun uh, got dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and the humanity was faced with this uh, dilemma that uh, the world is about to end. Um, yeah. So that was not. I mean, you know, obviously, Andy it's, Weir it's, is uh, it's famous for the Martian. Yeah, but, it's his latest uh, one. Let's see what what was Hail, Hail Mary or yes. is it uh, Artemis? Uh, yes, or, Hail, Hail, Hail Mary. Mary. Yeah, uh, okay. I love the book. Okay. I love the book. It's a great book. Okay, okay, super well, easy. Then that, super easy read. Well, okay. Yeah. So, are you are you then a fan of science fiction books? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, unfortunately, okay. I don't have uh, as much time as I used to have for science fiction uh, who books does? before. Uh, and this is why, by the way, I, I loved Hail Mary so much because sometimes uh, uh, in the evening it's just like. I need to unplug my brain and I just cannot read anything. Uh, and uh, somehow Hail Mary was just perfect, absolutely perfect. So easy and uh, so engaging. So yeah. normally I ask people their favorite programming language, but I'm just guessing it's Python for you. Uh, probably Python, but I actually uh, also rediscovered JavaScript for myself. I, 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 I was always like... Uh, an advanced JavaScript developer, uh, did a lot of interesting things with it. But uh, uh, when I was writing a client library for HDB a couple of years ago, or three years ago, uh, I chose TypeScript. And I loved the experience of TypeScript a lot. Uh, it's actually, it actually was uh, quite a fun thing for me to do. And I never would imagine that it's possible to fix some of the language words with, uh, with just this optional typing. And uh, it makes total sense, and it's amazing. And yeah, TypeScript, I think, is a great example of engineering done right. No, okay, cool. And um, so let, let's let's look at this technology landscape. I know where you are currently, company wise, what you're working on. But are there some technologies out there that you're looking at, going, "Wow, that's really cool or interesting"? Uh, WebAssembly is one of them for mm. sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think it will unlock a lot of interesting use cases uh, in the future. Okay. Um, and if there is one thing in the technology space that really worries you or that you're trying to figure out how we solve as a, as a community, what would that be? 
Uh, the thing that worries me slightly, but then again, maybe I'm just being ignorant and maybe I haven't done my research yet, uh, is Web3 thing. For now, I, 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 I don't get mm. it uh, from the technical standpoint, from my limited knowledge of, uh, of the crypto So decentralization just, and... Yeah, yeah like I, I'm, that, not against, yeah. I'm not against decentralization. I'm just not sure that uh, Web3 in, in the way how it's currently pitched. Uh, is going to be a thing. Maybe it will uh, change and evolve into something different, but in its current form, I'm just not sure from the technical standpoint if it's feasible or not. Uh, so it's one of those things that I'm uh, sometimes paying attention to and uh, reading articles, but I still haven't uh, made up my mind. Okay. Well, Yuri, I wanted to thank you for coming on today, chatting with us, telling us a little bit about EdgeDB, where you're going, how you got here. I do appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, to all listeners, uh, please check out HDB. Uh, go to hdb.com and uh, we have great documentation, amazing tutorials. Uh, it's going to be an interesting ride for you. I guarantee that, absolutely. So check it out, please. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll go ahead and drop the links in the description as well. So awesome. if you are interested in either trying it out or maybe even contributing some code, providing bug, you know, bugs, uh, you know, some feedback, I'm sure Yuri and the team there would be uh, most grateful for that. We would be delighted. Yeah. And so for those listening, uh, go ahead and like, subscribe to the channel here. We would love to hear your feedback. If you'd like Yuri back on, tell us. If you want someone else in this space, you want to hear about a different project, let me know. I'm happy to have on people. You know me. I like to talk. So um, we do appreciate all of you hanging out, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Wow, what a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.